rock on. Um, how many of you had the experience where you got a car, whether it was a new car or a new to you car, you, you got a car that you hadn't had before, and you began to notice everywhere on the road was that car? Like the same car. Anybody ever had this sort of? It's not that they weren't there before, it just kind of attunes you to noticing that everybody apparently drives the same car you do. That's happened with me lately with the word blessing. Um, because we've been talking about what does it mean to be blessed? When Jesus blesses all of these groups of people, what is, it, what is he actually doing? What is he actually talking about? This past week, there's been a new store that uh, opened near our house, and we were like, hey, we should go. We only had one kid that night. Uh, we, we have five. The other four weren't just like running loose. Like somebody had them. They were safe. Uh, and we thought, we only have one kid. This is super easy. Let's just go check out the store. And we happened, we were walking around, and we went down the home decor section and boy were we blessed um let me tell you we were so blessed so um it began with that for ten dollars you could your house could be blessed with this lovely thing and if you have this in your home i'm not making fun of you i just think it's bad theology um so <laughs> you're fine you do you it's fine um there's that one a little more austere less whimsy with this one it's it's sort of like I think the way my, my grandma would talk about blessed probably a little bit more. And then, I like this one, bless our home. What does that mean? Like, do we ever think about, like, what are we asking for? What does it mean for our home to be blessed? And I've just noticed this stuff everywhere. It's almost like when I see somebody's Facebook status and the word bless is in it. Like, it comes out. It's, like, superimposed. I'm like, I wonder if they know what that, and I just want to, like, start asking, what does that mean to you? Because I think it's really important to think about the definitions of words we use, especially theological words, words that have a ton of baggage, that have a ton of like, history to them. What does it mean when we use them? For our purposes, we've been talking about blessed uh, in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus announces these blessings, these beatitudes. We've been talking about the definition is Jesus is essentially saying God is with you. God is for you. God is on your side. So the Beatitudes are a way of saying to people who generally have probably felt like God and have been told maybe that God isn't with them, that God isn't for them, that God isn't on their side. No, 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 no. It may seem like you're in a tough situation. It may seem like you're in a hopeless situation, a, a tough, difficult situation. God is with you. God is for you. God is on your side. And so today we're going to look at um, another Beatitude. We have two more this week and next week. Uh, with the Beatitudes, and the week after that, we're going to follow up the Beatitudes with Jesus gives this, the next line after the Beatitudes is this business about you are the light of the world and you are the salt of the earth, which flows really beautifully from the Beatitudes, and we're going to wrap up this series by reflecting on what that might mean. Um, but usually each week I show you multiple versions, but none of them, uh, this one pretty much is what most of them say, so we're just going to go with the NRSV today. Uh, Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the, can I tell you one of the things I've been struggling with? How many of you say blessed? Like, I, I kid you not, like, before this series started, I was, like, in, dis I was in distress. Like, I don't know which one to say. I say blessed, but I hear other people say blessed, and it sounds a little more religiously official, because um, you just add the ED. So I, I'm just going to go blessed, blessings on you if you go with the other version, okay? <laughs> blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. If you're new to Grace Point, one of the things we do all the time is we just want to ask questions about things. And so I have four questions that are going to sort of structure where we go today. The first one is, what, what is peace? Because before we talk about people who make peace, 
it's probably a good idea to ask, what is it the thing they're being, they're, they're being blessed for making in the world? And then who is Jesus talking? Each week we've asked that question. Like, who are the pure in heart? Who are the poor in spirit? Who are the meek? Who are the merciful? Who are these folks Jesus is blessing? Then what does it mean to be called children of God? Because in one sense, everybody's a child of God, right? But, but Jesus seems to be using it in a really interesting, specific sort of way here. And then how do we bless peacemakers? Because the thing we focused on also at the end of each teaching is... If we don't fall into this beatitude, then our invitation is to think about how do we bring about the blessing, because that's how blessing happens in the world. This, how, how does God show up to, for people? How is God's witness experienced? It is always, always through other human beings. And so how do we bless peacemakers? So let's begin with what is peace? I would say most of us, whether you're in this room or watching on YouTube right now, when you hear the word peace, I bet there are some specific things that pop into your brain like there are for me. Um, when I think about peace, I think about the absence of conflict or you know, how the, there has been a conflict, but somebody came in and brought that conflict to an end. Empires talk about peace all the time. Throughout human history, pretty much every world empire has talked about peace and believed that they were the peace bringers of the earth. Now, empires have a very specific way of bringing peace on earth, right? Which is whoever has the biggest uh, military, who has the most bombs, whoever has the biggest firepower, they go in, sort of have their way, and then when the other people wave the white flag and they say, we can't take anymore, then they make peace, which is generally just accepting their surrender. Is this everybody tracking with this? This is typically how we talk about it in the world. So there's a Roman historian, because Rome ruled the world when Jesus lived, and so that we spend a lot of time on the Roman Empire. Um, Rome, uh, there's a Roman historian named Tacitus, and he wrote uh, a history called the Annals. And in this specific history he writes, he is Roman, he's writing about Roman history, he quotes a, a, a military leader from another group of people, and he records something, this leader, and his name is Calgacus. I've worked really hard on that all week as well. Like, I wrote the sermon in a day and spent the other days just going, Calgacus, Calgacus, Calgacus. Um, and so he, now here's what, scholars and historians actually don't know that this guy ever said this. They think that it's very likely that Tacitus created this speech and put it on his lips. Happened all the time in the ancient world, even shows up in the Bible sometimes like that. And so, uh, but here's what's really interesting. If Tacitus made this speech up, it is like double indicting. Because he knows what Rome is like and he, he still supports it, <laughs> okay? So, so here's the speech. And this is what Calgacus says about the Roman Empire. Robbers of the world, now that the earth is insufficient for their all-devastating hands, they probe even the sea. If their enemy is rich, they are greedy. If he is poor, they thirst for dominion. Neither east nor west has satisfied them. Now, if we were just playing a game, which empire are we talking about here? You could pretty much name any empire the world has ever known, even the one you're sitting in right now, and that would sum up foreign policy. Are you with me? This is how empire works. They're not satisfied with anything. If they're rich, then they're greedy. If the enemy is rich, they're greedy. If the enemy's poor, they just want to control them. And he continues. Alone of mankind, they're equally covetous of poverty and wealth. Robbery, slaughter, and plunder, they falsely name empire. They make a desert, and they call it peace. I mean, if Tacitus wrote that himself, like, why are you still supporting it? <laughs> they make a desert and call it peace. That's how the world works. Pretty much any peace treaty that has been signed in human history has been signed in an imbalance of power. There's the victors and the losers. 
The people who won because they had superior training and superior weapons and superior bombs. And then there are the people they defeated who surrender and then they magnanimously accept the surrender with all sorts of conditions about how this is going to play out, right? And here's, what's, here's the problem. Domination cannot bring peace. It just can't. You cannot kill your way to peace. You cannot bomb your way to peace. You cannot win your way to peace. It is just impossible. What you can do is you can scare people. You can inspire people to to do what you want with fear. Um, You can force them into obedience. But obedience isn't peace. It's not. We're just papering over with this view of peace. We're just papering over the problems of the world, and we're not actually dealing with with them. The Romans actually had a, a very specific way of talking about peace. They would talk about peace through victory. How do we bring peace? Well, we make a desert. We, we go into other places where, whose military is not as strong as ours, whose political system is not as advanced as ours, who, they don't do the things like we do them, and we go in and we wipe them out, and then we declare that we have brought peace to the world. In Jesus' era, there was actually this thing called Roman peace, Pax Romana, which was this belief that Caesar Augustus had brought peace to the world and stability. Now, he did bring peace to the city of Rome. The way he did that, kill everybody around you and force them into subjugation. Domination isn't peace. Because weapons can only wound. Weapons, whether those weapons are bombs and guns and drones, or whether those weapons are words or actions where you slight someone or gossip about someone. Weapons cannot bring healing to wounds. And and so we're left to wrestle with, what does Jesus mean by peace when he uses this word? Now, Jesus actually didn't speak Greek. We have no reason to believe Jesus would have known the Greek language. Um, He would have had some facility with Hebrew probably, even though it was a dead language, and he would have spoken his, like, everyday language would have been Aramaic. And there's a word, and it's really similar in Hebrew and Aramaic, that gets translated as peace often. And it's this word, shalom. And that's what I want to focus on today. I want to focus on peace as shalom. And shalom, we translate it peace, but it actually is such a much bigger concept. Shalom means wholeness. Shalom means completeness. It means welfare. It, it means everything is in right relationship with everything else. Shalom is ultimately about things being put back together, made whole, and made right which is different than how we think about peace, right? Because shalom, for everything to be whole and in right relationship, that means shalom demands, requires justice and accountability. You cannot have shalom in the world. You cannot have wholeness. You cannot have this kind of peace that is about right relationship until we have accounted for the injustices that have been perpetuated in the world. I mean, one of the things that happens, and this happens throughout uh, every, every president of the United States has sort of, especially in contentious times, has pivoted to a message of unity. And I remember listening to President Biden's, uh, I think it was his inauguration address, where he was in, like, we need to come together and be unified as a country. And that sounds good on the surface, but one of the problems with that is that what we're being asked to do is we're being asked to unify when the problems that we're being, we've been dealing with in our country have not been dealt with and are still being perpetuated and are still ongoing and are still harming people. We cannot ask people of color to be unified with white supremacists. We can't. And that's what we do. Oh, can't we all just, I mean, there are good people on both sides. They're not, right? Like, but, but that's, that's sort of, that's sort of what we do, right? Let's, oh, can't we all just get along? Can't we all just agree, just agree to disagree? 
when, when there is systemic racial injustice in our country. And our response to that right now, especially in states like t- the one we're in here in, in Tennessee, is not only are we going to ignore the problem, we're going to try to legislate so that we can't even tell our kids the truth about our history. That we can't even be honest and say, you know, Columbus wasn't really a hero. He slaughtered a lot of, enslaved a lot of people. And it's now like, oh, you can't actually say the KKK is immoral. And they say that, like, we don't have any val- like morals or values. What? Are you kidding me that we can't name that our country, yes, there's some beautiful, there's lots of beauty, and we've done good things in the world, but we also have perpetuated a lot of injustice. And we don't want to be honest about it. I, don't, I, I grew up in a, a school in a holler in eastern Kentucky. You can probably tell that by the way I talk. Um, and by the way, I use the English language, by the way. <laughs> um, but but here's, here's the reality. I never, never, never had lessons on anything that is remotely true about our nation's founding. And, and now we're saying, well, it, we, it may make us feel bad if we tell the truth. Yeah. I think there's something in the Bible about sorrow bringing, godly sorrow bringing repentance and repentance bring, bringing transformation, but we, we can't ask for unity until we address the evil of white supremacy and systemic racism in this country. We cannot ask the abused to unify with their abusers and continue to be abused. We, we cannot ask those who have been on the underside of power to just suck it up and unify with those who have used power so grotesquely to shape the world in their own image. To do so would be sinful. To do so is a violation of the image of God in every human being. Because here's what Shalom says. Shalom says, and this was a refrain last year, um, that if you were around any of the, the protests after Breonna Taylor's murder and George, George Floyd's murder, there were, there were protests, and one of the mantras at the protest was, no justice, no peace. And friends, that was not a threat. That was an acknowledgement. That until we are open to justice, until we're open to accountability for the injustices of the world, We cannot really truly experience shalom, wholeness, everything in right relationship, everyone in right relationship. We actually have to tell the truth about how we ended up where we are, and and then, then, when we're on it, and healing can begin to happen, then we can begin to dream about what the world might be, would look like, unified and together. Jesus, by the way, isn't just riffing here. He's not being innovative. He's actually standing in the tradition of the prophets. Notice these words from Isaiah. The wolf shall live with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid. And I think it's talking about a goat there. Um, if, you just, <laughs> if you just want to make a note, this is the goat part. Like, that's, that's important. Uh, the calf and the lion and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put its hand in the adder's den. They will, neither, uh, they will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I mean, this is a profound vision of a world, and it's, it's, it's one of those things that it's unbelievable that a human being could even have this vision. 
I mean, had to have some sort of help to envision a world that is so far from what any of us, especially in Isaiah's day when they were, uh, there was a threat of defeat by Assyria and then uh, Babylon. I mean, just an unbelievable vision he has for the world. And I love the end of it. They will neither harm nor destroy, and the world will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Do you know what's stunning to me sometimes? It's that the people who claim to know the most about God, or Siri was recording that entire thing, like, <laughs> unbelievable. Let me just put this on, uh, I don't know how to put this on silent mode. Uh, thank you, Siri. Why don't you do that when it's helpful? There we go. Um, where was I? Oh, they will neither harm nor destroy. The world, earth will be covered with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's interesting that the more knowledge of the Lord there is in Isaiah's vision, the less harm there is. Because I bet most of us know people who they claim to know God, they claim to know the Lord, they claim to have lots, not just know, but know lots about the Lord. And the reality is it hasn't made them less harmful to other people. I mean, the reason we talk about religious trauma, uh, the reason we talk about that is because people who have been close to God and known God have actually done some of the most harm in human history to other human beings. But Isaiah says, no, no, when you actually have the actual knowledge of the Lord, it leads you away from harm and away from destruction and into a different kind of humanity. You ever known somebody who if you could have gone back in time in the DeLorean, if you don't know what that is, you've missed out on some movies about 30 years ago. Um, but if you could get in a time machine, go back in time, is there anybody you would like try to help them not become Christian? I mean, let's start with Constantine, and then don't get me going on that. But like, so like I've known people. Like I, I remember being in a conversation with somebody once, and 20 years as a pastor, and I'm sure somebody thinks that this about me too, but um, I was like, I just remember thinking, I didn't say it out loud because I developed a filter by then, but it was sort of like, I, like it would have been so much better for you if you had never joined church or become a Christian or gotten saved or whatever language you're using for that. Like, it would have been better for you and the world because it hasn't made you a better person. It hasn't made you a more compassionate person. It's actually made you a more judgmental person. It, 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 you've become a person who cares more about being right than about other human beings. And it doesn't seem like Jesus said that that was the great commandment. It seems something about loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. I just found that interesting in this text. The other interesting bit for me is that the image here is that the, the predator and prey exist side by side without threat. Has anybody seen the movie Zootopia? They got that from Isaiah. Like total copyright infringement. Way before Zootopia was a thing, Isaiah was like the lion and the lamb, the bear and the cow, the... Uh, the child and the snake, which where I'm from was a common thing. Like it was nobody even batted an eye about it. Um, but this beautiful image of in this vision of where the world could go, not only do we not destroy and do harm, but the very fabric of nature, which has wired some people to be predators and some people to be prey. And we can even put it in different language. Has wired some people to be oppressors and they need someone to oppress. That that very system can be undone and flushed out. And that the lion and the lamb can actually coexist together without one needing to harm the other. I think that's what shalom is about. 
But in order for shalom to happen, there needs to be some sort of transformation of the lion. Because right now, like if you were curating an exhibit at the Nashville Zoo, you're not like, you know what we need in the lion's den? Bring a couple sheep over here. They'll be so cute. The kids will take pictures of them side by side. There's going to be wool everywhere. Right? We know how this goes. And yet in this vision of Isaiah of where the world could go, there is this healing. This tra- and I imagine that there has to be some, we have to deal with the lion's need to be a predator. And we have to make sure that the lamb aren't being preyed upon anymore. That's what shalom is about. Shalom is about justice and accountability. It's about healing and setting free the oppressed. But it is also about healing and setting free the oppressor so that they no longer need or feel the impulse to oppress other human beings. When I think Jesus talks about, that, that's a lot to say in just the phrase peacemakers, right? But I think that's what Jesus means when he says peace. Now, who is he talking about when he talks about the peacemakers. A couple of writers who have done some work on the Beatitudes. One, Mark Allen uh, Powell says, the peacemakers whom Jesus pronounces blessed in 5.9 are best regarded as agents of God who are actively establishing shalom. And the word for me that keeps coming up in these Beatitudes is that word active. Active. There's something that keeps calling, whether it's us to be active in blessing the people doing the or the people who are engaged in the Beatitudes. They are actively being a certain kind of human in the world. And the peacemakers are those who actively seek to bring about shalom in the world because the, Lord, the, the world needs some shalomness, some shalominess. I, I don't know which one of those works for you, but I just made them both up and they're free to use. That's what the world needs so, so desperately. Then Jack Kingsbury says it like this. Peacemakers are those who work for the wholeness and well-being that God wills for a broken world. Do you see why the word peace can't really cover that? Because peacemakers are not first and foremost primarily people who are involved in conflict resolution. That's why you have HR. And we may not even want to call them peacemakers. Maybe we should actually call them shalom makers, shalom initiators, shalom creators, because that's actually who they are and that's what they're doing in the world. They're not just trying to stop people from fighting. They're trying to bring about a scenario and a context where the wounds are healed and nobody feels the need to fight with one another. And that works out on all sorts of different ways. But I think shalom makers, peacemakers, are people who put their lives, and that can mean lots of things, their, their, uh, their resources, their income, their popularity, their reputation, even their very bodies on the line to bring about this kind of vision for the world. I don't know, and I want to talk about it two ways, and I want to talk about public, and I want to talk about personal, uh, but realize these are not separate things. All, everything public is personal, and everything personal is public. That's just how things end up working out. I want to begin with p- the public. Um, how many of you remember March 7th, 1965? Anybody remember that date? It's known in American history as Bloody Sunday, and that was the date of a nonviolent march in Selma, Alabama, across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And there are several stunning images, as as I'm sure you know, um, hopefully you know, that the Alabama State Police reacted violently to nonviolent protesters. They beat them. They um, almost killed so many people on that day. And there's an iconic image from that march that is probably going to be really familiar to you. 
But as you can see, that's an Alabama state trooper with a baton beating a young black man. Does anybody know who that is? It's John Lewis. It's John Lewis. John Lewis, who marched peacefully, asking for his humanity to be seen and affirmed. And instead, for the rest of his life, bore the scars on his body of nonviolent, peaceful protest. Do you ever wonder why so many people react violently to nonviolence? I'll be honest, I think it's because they're terrified. And here's why they're terrified. Violence cannot change the human heart. Right? I can remember as a kid when they'd be like, if you don't stop, you're going to go have to cut down your own switch. That did not change my heart. It changed my behavior sometimes, but it didn't transform my heart. Because ultimately, violence cannot transform. It can bully, it can, it can uh, f- inspire fear, it can, it can get you to obedience, but it can never transform the heart. And I think violence is a last-ditch effort when you know that this image, this image can transform your heart. Because this image reveals the bankruptcy of human violence and the courage and strength of nonviolence. This image, when you see this, surely, I hope, you're thinking, isn't there a better way to run the world? Isn't there a better way to be human? Couldn't it all be different? In May 2020, there were protests after the murder of George Floyd, and some of those protests also became about the murder of Breonna Taylor, who was killed by the Louisville Police Department, executing a no-knock warrant in the middle of the night. And there was a a protest in Louisville one night, I think it was on a Thursday night in May of 2020, and tensions were very high, and there was some fear that that, um, that there might be some violence, Um, and the police were armed to the teeth. And so one of the, the Black Lives Matter uh, organizers in Louisville, there were a group of, uh, in the, at this protest, there were a group of white women. And she essentially said to the white women in the group, if you're going to be here, you've got to protect this space. And so what happened is these white women who showed up to the protest formed a, a, a human line to separate the police from the peaceful protesters. And they stood there. The photographer who happened to be present to capture the shot, his name was Tim uh, Druck. He, he says she, Chanel Helm, was asking for white folks to use their privilege and put their bodies between police and the other demonstrators. And people responded. That they didn't need to be convinced. Everybody willingly and enthusiastically did it. Sometimes peacemaking, shalom making, is about putting your own body on the line for your own shalom. But sometimes shalom making is about understanding you have privilege And that that brings a responsibility to use it in a way that creates the most shalom possible for every single person on the planet. I I think, especially for those of us who are white people, the minute people begin to talk about our privilege, we're like, no, you don't know. You don't know what my life's been like. You don't know where I've been. Okay, great. Yes. You may have had a difficult life. It may have been really, really hard. What white privilege means is that the color of your skin didn't contribute to that difficulty. And it means that you walk into any room you walk into with a certain amount of privilege. And we can, we can have the response of ignoring it and feeling, well, I just feel so guilty about it, I don't even want to talk about it. 
Or we can say, yes, it's true, it's real, I have it. And it is now my responsibility to use it in whatever way I can possibly use it to bring about the most shalom for the most people. And sometimes that will mean putting your body on the line. And sometimes that will mean putting your um, reputation on the line or putting friendships on the line and drawing maybe at times some lines that say, I, I can't go there with you because I, that is, disrupts shalom and I want to be the kind of person who brings as much shalom as possible to the world. Are you with me? Because privilege brings responsibility. It's not all about building rockets to go to space. Sometimes it's about feeding hungry people. Uh, like th there's a thing that we're called to do with it. And then there's the, the personal. Um, and, and so I mean this in lots of ways. I mean the interpersonal. How many of you in this room or online right now, you are the people when in somebody in your friend group, a couple people are mad at each other, you always get dragged into it. Anybody? How many of you are the people dragging your friends into your business? Like, can we just, maybe we can see who needs to. We can matchmake you with peacemakers in the room. Um, uh, and that may be a lot of fun for everybody. But I, I bet some of you in this room, some of you watching online, you're, you're the peacemakers in your friend group or in your family. When, you know, when, when Bob and Belinda, or it was Travis and Sheila at the first service, but when Bob and Belinda are mad at each other, like, they call you. Or, or when your sister and your brother aren't speaking because you know what happened at Thanksgiving, um, you're the person who kind of gets drawn into this, and you're the one trying to figure out, how do I help them begin to make peace in this situation? Sometimes it's people who are, and I've, I see some of you doing this, both on the internet and in person, it's people going, hey, I, would, I really think you should consider getting a COVID vaccine because we want shalom in the world. And we need to stop the transmission of this virus if we're going to have shalom in the world because we have to love our neighbor because there are people getting sick and dying and they really don't have to, right? It's people who are setting up and working at clinics and volunteering their time. It's those of you who, who volunteer your time at really beautiful organizations and you show up and you give your labor and you give your love and you're seeking to bring about shalom, right? Those of you who have ever done canvassing with Open Table and you're driving around town trying to find our friends who are experiencing homelessness and, and trying to provide whatever um, their needs are in that moment, and you know what it's like. You, you just want shalom. You just want, I almost said shalom in the home, which was like a TLC show. Uh, <laughs> uh, you need some shalominess in the world, and you want to help make that a reality, and so you've given your time and your energy and at times your resources into bringing about that, and, and you realize it's sort of that whole bit about, you know, there's a million starfish on the beach and you're throwing one back in, but you're doing what you can, and you realize that there are so many fires to put out in the world, but we can't put them all out if we don't put this one out. And so you're, you're doing what you can to bring about shalom in the world. And then some of you, um, I, I know this both in our in-person and online community, some of you are people who, since your purpose and calling in the world is to help other people on their journey toward inner shalom. Like, you want to help people um, heal from wounds. And some of you in this community, you're, you're therapists and, one of the, and you're counselors, and what, some of the things you do is you, you try to meet with people and help them process their stories so it's not like their stories against them, but you're helping them process it and begin to inspire some hope that healing is possible and that maybe just maybe there's some, some sort of journey to wholeness that could begin to happen, and you give your energy to that all the time, whether professionally or amateurly, you, you're spending your time and energy trying to help people, sometimes beloved friends and sometimes complete strangers, 
begin that journey toward wholeness as a human being. And what sacred and holy work that is you do in the world, which means every single bit of that comes with cost. If you're in the Beatitudes, you're paying a price. And that price is sometimes when you show up as a peacemaker, you leave with physical scars. Sometimes you show up as a peacemaker, you leave with scars on your heart or on your mind, and you carry those around with you forever because there's a cost to peacemaking. Have you ever been in that situation trying to help your friends and then they both get mad at you? You're like, Bob, Belinda, you brought this to me. I didn't ask to be involved, and now I'm the bad guy, and you're the one who, like, what? Yeah, that happens. It happens, doesn't it? You, you, you come in as the magnanimous peacemaker, and now you're the one taking shots. There's this great line in the book of Ephesians where the writer's talking about the death of Jesus. And he's, the writer says that the, death of, the cross of Jesus was about putting to end, the, tearing down the dividing wall of hostility. Here's what's interesting. The writer isn't talking about a dividing wall of hostility between God and people. We're hostile to God, God's hostile to us. It's about tearing down the dividing wall of hostility in this community between Jews and Gentiles. But imagine people who are completely different, completely opposites, and have nothing in common, and they have uh, anger and hatred for one another. It's about tearing down the dividing wall of hostility. That's kind of what peacemakers do. But remember, they're talking about this in terms of Jesus' death. That in his death, he tears down the wall, creating one new humanity. It comes with a cost. And there are those of you today who bear those scars on your heart, on your, on your soul, on your body of peacemaking. And so what does it mean then to call peacemakers children of God? There's a couple great passages about this. Notice Ephesians 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Be imitators of God as beloved children. If you've ever been around a kid, especially a small kid, for more than two seconds, you know that kids will imitate almost anything you do. They, they will even repeat your profanities in the most awkward of times with the most awkward of people. Uh, right? But that's what kids do. That's, I remember when, our, when all of our littles were first born, one of the things I would do with them is I would just hold them and repeat over and over again, looking into their eyes as if to hypnotize, hypnotize them, da, 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 da. And if any of you saw that, you would not say, this guy is unaware of how to form sentences. You would be aware. I'm trying to get them to imitate. And we do that with facial expressions, and we do that with words, and, 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 and then we do that with walking and running, and they do all of those things. And they do, it, they do it by watching us, which just reminded me of that 80s commercial. You remember that commercial? Where'd you learn how to do this? You, all right. I learned it from watching you. Like, there's this thing that happens when kids watch us. And they begin to figure out what it means to be human and what it means to, to grow up and what it means to be a communicating human. And, and it's this profound, beautiful thing. And the writer here says, okay, you know that thing that happens with your kids? That's, that's you, but with the divine. Be imitators of God because you are dearly loved children of God. One of my favorite things, and it also makes me hold my breath almost every time, is when my kids put on my shoes. You ever seen kids do this? When their little foot goes in my size 13, and they love to put on anything that's like a boot or something like that, because that just, it sounds like a Clydesdale going through the house. Um, and I think that's the image that this, that this beatitude brings up for me. 
peacemakers, shalom makers, are those who are walking around in God's shoes. Because this is what God is like. This is God's dream and vision for the world. Wholeness, everything in right relationship, justice, accountability, healing, transformation, wholeness. And I think that's what peacemakers are doing. They're, they're saying, hey, look, I'm trying. And we do it feebly and we fumble around. We're not always good at it. And sometimes we make mistakes and we don't get it all right. Of course, of course, of course, of course. Remember, the shoes don't fit. But maybe one day they will as we keep putting them on and keep putting one foot in front of the other. 1 John 3, see what love Abba, our parent God, has lavished on us in letting us be God's, called God's children. Yet that, in fact, is that's what we are. You, my friends, are children of God, and God is inviting you to put on God's shoes. So how do we bless the peacemakers? Two things. First, I think we support them in whatever that looks like, whether that's donating to a cause, whether that's showing up and handing out bottled water, whatever, whatever support looks like, um, whether it's you're the ear they cry, talk to and cry, you're the shoulder they cry on, that, maybe that. And, and I think the other thing is we join them. We join them. I think this beatitude does contain an invitation. If we want the world to be at peace, if we want shalom in the home of the world, if we want shalominess running wild in the world, lions and lambs lying with one another, then the call and the challenge and the invitation to us is to join the work of shalom creating and shalom initiating in the world. Are you with me? Yes. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for the peacemakers among us, for those who have a vision of what the world could be, like the prophet Isaiah, the wolf lying down with the lamb, the bear and the cow, predator and prey, living in peace, without threat, without harm, without violence. Our prayer is through the work of Shalom that not only will the oppressed be set free, but also the oppressors would be liberated from the need to oppress. And we know there is, that is a daunting task before us in the world. We know that peace is not just going to fall down from the sky, but it's going to bubble from the ground up. So may we become peacemakers. May we join the work of creating and cultivating and initiating shalom in the world. And as we do that, may we find ourselves slowly but surely growing into God's shoes. May we find ourselves slowly but surely noticing the world around us as being healed, transformed, and made more whole. That is our prayer. We are grateful. And everybody said, Amen.